Well, he already asked you to, but if you haven't done it already, if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're beginning uh, John 8 today, and we'll be starting in verse 12, that uh, verse that was just read for us. Um, If you're here with us last week, uh, you know that we wrapped up John chapter 7 and considered uh, Jesus' great invitation where he told the crowd there, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, Jesus, our everlasting rock, invites us to himself. If you're here and you've been going through the series uh, with us, you're now sitting there and you might be wondering, what happened to the first part of chapter 8? I can see some of your faces even. Um, because we never actually skip verses here uh, at FVC. Uh, we go through the Bible verse by verse, teaching it expositionally, it's called. And so the question is, why are we starting in verse 12 today? Uh, why not the first, going through the first 11 verses of John 8 and the last verse, actually, of John 7. And so I need to briefly address that, okay? Um, it's my conviction, and most scholars, actually, uh, vast majority, 95 plus, 99% even, um, that John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11, was actually not written by the Apostle John that it was added to our Bibles later on. And there's a few good reasons why we believe that, okay? And this is, it's important enough for me to share it with you. Number one, why do we believe that John didn't write this? Number one, um, this portion of scripture is virtually absent from every single early Greek manuscript, okay? It's actually not found in any Greek manuscripts until the fifth century, okay? And so what that means is for the first 400 years of the church, we don't find this story in the Bible, okay? Not only that, it's also absent from the church fathers. None of the early church fathers for the first 400 years address this story or address this content or say that it's somewhere found in the scriptures, okay? So that's first. Second, Okay, there's, an, there's a very serious issue of placement here. Okay? The truth is that this portion of Scripture doesn't feel like John, but more importantly, it doesn't sound like John at all. Actually, the Greek language, and this is why there's some it's importance to knowing the original language, the Greek language here is totally different. Okay? Um, You're going to see things there like the word scribes, for example, to address the Jews. And that's never done by John. In John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, he never does that. So there's language differences. But on top of that, there's a major issue of context as well. Because the story that's told here, this woman who's caught in adultery, the story that's told here doesn't fit the flow of chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. For example... Okay, if you have your Bible open, you can see in John chapter 7, verse 53, it says this. Then they went back to their homes. See, it says that. There's a big issue with that. The problem with that is that, remember, if you've been here, we've been going through the Feast of Tabernacles. We're in the midst of the Feast of Booze, which means the Jews would never have gone home. They actually weren't legally allowed to go home. Remember, they are living in tents during this week. They are required to stay at the temple. And so this placement of this story doesn't really fit with John, which is, by the way, why some scholars or some editions of your Bible place it in Luke, okay? Now, that being said, let me also say this. The reason that this text is still here Some of you have it italicized in your Bibles, for example. Some of it's just absent. It's because many scholars still acknowledge that while the story doesn't belong here in John, it is a genuine piece of Christian tradition, meaning it is most likely describing a real-life event that took place during Jesus' ministry. And beyond that, 
It's also important to note this, for those who are skeptical of the Bible, is that there's actually nothing contradictory in this story at all. Okay? If it was there, there's no issues. Okay? In fact, the story serves as a great illustration of Jesus' grace and the truth that he provides. So, I'll leave it at this for now. Uh, we believe, we know that the Bible, God's word, is 100% inspired and inerrant. It is perfect, but listen, it is perfect in its original form. That's important to know. And so, it's our job as students of the Bible to determine what is original. What did the authors of Scripture actually say? What did they actually write? And because I do not hold the conviction that John wrote this, and we are working through John's gospel, I'm not going to be teaching this portion of scripture for the series. Okay? I hope that makes sense. Maybe another day, another time. Okay? But not in John's gospel, not in John's series, because I don't believe it belongs there. All right. Now, if you have more questions, some of you might, might have more questions. A couple options. Number one, you can ask your missional family leader if you're in a missional family. Number two, you can ask one of the pastoral staff here. Number three, you can ask one of our elders. Um, number four, you can fill out a connect card and say, hey, I'd like to talk to somebody about it. Number five, use Google. Okay? And you'll probably see the first two pages on Google are all explaining what I just explained to you. Okay? Go to gotquestions.org. That's a good place for you to start. Some of you are like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Go to gotquestions.org. Okay? All right. So... John chapter 8, verse 12, which I guess, in my opinion, should be John chapter 8, verse 1. Today we are looking at one of the most famous statements that Jesus made during his three years of ministry. He has just said to the, to the crowd during the, this feast that if you want life, if you want salvation, come to me and drink. And now he is following those bold words with this. I am the light of the world. Beautiful words from a great savior. And my prayer for us today is that Jesus would turn the lights on in our hearts to see the beauty that's here in this text and to glorify the one who spoke them. Um, actually, uh, before I jump into the text, I think it's appropriate for us uh, to pray um, for two reasons. Number one, pray before God's word uh, is taught so that we can, I speak it well, um, you receive it well. But more than that, especially because of what we just said, I want to make sure that we're resetting our hearts and we're prepared. Okay, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're here today humbled before you and your word. Teach us today what you have to say to us. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive your truth and your truth alone. Help us to see that you are, truly are, the one and only light of the world. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We know at a basic level uh, the value of light, don't we? Uh, light brings life. Right? Things grow in the light. At least they're supposed to, right? Some of you can't grow a plant in your house to save your life. But they're supposed to. Okay? Things are supposed to grow in the light. Right? We also know that light is symbolic of truth. Uh, we often say, there's a phrase in English, we often say when someone finally gets it or they come to understanding, we say that the lights went on for them, right? Or if a person is honest, we have this phrase as well. We say that person has come into the light. We also know on a basic level that light illuminates our path. We turn our lights on at night because we need to see where we're going. That's the reason that you're supposed to turn your lights on in your car when you're driving at night. It's illegal not to. Because why? Light provides safety. It lets you see and you be seen. How many of you... Uh, when you were a kid, slept with a nightlight on because it made you feel safer. Right? It's the first thing I ever stole, right? A Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle nightlight. 
right, from the equivalent of like an e-mart, right? I remember plugged it in, like, at night, hid it from my parents, my mom, you know, I didn't know that, like, you know, parents check under the door, she sees this thing glowing, wonders what's going on, opens the door, and Michelangelo's face is the orange one, shining, right, and I'm looking at it, right? It's like, where did you get this? I didn't know what to say, you know? I had to admit I stole it. She made me, I'll never forget, she made me walk, walk back with her that next day, walk in, go to the manager and admit what I did and the whole thing. It was awful, right? I never slept with a nightlight after that, right? <laughs> but some of you, some of you, you slept with a nightlight because you felt safer, right? Some of you still do that maybe or have kids that, that do that. Right? We also know that light provides healing, There's a reason why people move to sunnier, warmer climates. Like my parents now have gone from New York to Florida. They're one of those, okay? Okay, stereotype. They meet it perfectly. Live on a golf course, drive a golf cart, the whole thing. Right? Why they do that, right? Because people love soaking up, right, that vitamin D. Right? And and it's, it's true, you know, that people are generally healthier in warm weather places. Right? You can check that research for yourself. Light provides a measure of healing for us. And, and we know that with that, light also brings a level of joy and happiness. Right? When the sun comes out after a, a period of time or period of darkness or maybe a long extended period of rain, people just generally get happier. Right? You can just travel to an island and see the culture there. It's always more chill, laid back, right? People just seem happier as opposed to colder, darker places, right? Well, at a deeper level, what we're going to see today is that the light of Jesus brings true and lasting joy, regardless of what part of the world you live in. Because spiritually speaking, every place in the world is actually a dark place. You see, the whole world needs the light of the world. And Jesus is that light. And so again, if you haven't turned there with me, we're now in John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. Um, before we read, the scene, uh, read that scripture won't, uh, again, let me just set the scene for us this morning, just to refresh our memories. We're still in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay. it's nearing the end of the festival now. And we are told, you can look at it in verse 20, we're told that Jesus is, in the, Jesus is in the temple and he is now speaking to the crowd in this place called the treasury. And here's what that means and why it's significant. The water ceremony has just finished. We talked about that last week where the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam, take his golden pitcher, fill it with water, come back into the temple, pour that water out onto the altar. The people are rejoicing. They're they're praising God. They're remembering the Lord's provision in the wilderness. They're they're remembering that God, the rock of their salvation, provides for them, saves them. And then after that ceremony took place, a second ceremony would happen as the sun was beginning to set. It sort of capped off the Feast of Tabernacles. And what would happen is, all of the people that were there in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, some scholars say, men and women would gather together in the temple in a place called the Court of the Women. The Court of the Women. There's a Gentile court, Court of the Women, And then there's a place that only the religious elite could go. Okay, three courts. They're in the court of the women. It was always the most full place, by the way. Okay, always. And around that court, we know that up above the court, uh, that there there were these huge candelabras and golden bowls that were were placed high around uh, the the outer rims and edges of of that courtyard. You actually needed pretty big ladders to to go up and reach them. And as the night came, the priests would then go around and begin to light all of those candles, all of those golden bowls. And they would burn all night long. And the reason they did this was because, remember now, they're celebrating what? They're celebrating 
the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. And how did the Israelites know where to go in the desert? How did they make their way around? Well, they were led by light, right? God miraculously led them with a pillar of fire at night and a lighted cloud in the day. It was light, God's light, that led them for those 40 years. And so, here they are now. They've lit everything, and they're remembering that. They're celebrating that. And let's understand, okay, I want us to really get the scene here, how powerful and impactful this would have been, that in a world that does not have public lighting, right, there's, there's no electricity, this was quite the scene. A lot of people write about it, actually. In, in some ancient Jewish texts like the Mishnah, it was said that you haven't seen real and true wonder until you've seen this light ceremony, until you've seen Jerusalem lit up at night. It's said in other places that the, that the temple during this ceremony would shine like a diamond. Just, it was magnificent, brilliant to see it. So the place is all lit up. And at that, we know the Levites, the priests, they would start singing. The people would begin to dance. Torches were, would be in their hands. They're all like have these lit torches. The people are worshiping God. And it's at some point in the midst of all of that that Jesus gets up and makes this gigantic claim. This is John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. What a claim. I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all your hopes and all your longings. It's worth it for us to break down this claim together, Jesus' claim. We know that this is the second time now that Jesus has used one of these I am statements of deity. In John 6, if you remember, he said there, I am the bread of life. Now he says, I am the light of the world. We're going to see five more of those I am statements as we progress through John's gospel. And I think it's just worth saying, this is a side note, but isn't it just amazing the way that Jesus uses the times, the seasons, and the things around him to teach people who he is? I was just struck by that this week, that he never addresses a person the same way. In John 4, the conversation started with water, and Jesus talked about living water. In John 6, they were talking about physical bread and the need for eating, physical food, and Jesus says, I'm the bread. In John chapter 7, there's a water ceremony, and Jesus says, come to me and drink. And now here at the light ceremony, the, the pinnacle of the ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles. Everything's lit. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. He didn't say, notice as well, this is important. Jesus doesn't say here, I am a light in the world. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I am a light in Jerusalem. He said, I am the light of the world. This is exclusive. It's all encompassing. And more importantly, this is actually a claim very directly to be the Messiah. It's important to note as well that the religious leaders, the Pharisees who were there that day listening to Jesus say this, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing when he said, I am the light of the world. Right? Again, these are masters of the scriptures. They're supposed to be anyway. They knew the scriptures, had the scriptures memorized uh, since the time, for many of them, when they were 12 years old, there was a test. And they would have to have the entire of what we know of the Old Testament memorized, particularly the first five books of the Bible. Every Jewish male boy, by the time they're 10, all five of those books are memorized. They know the word of God. They know the scriptures. They know what Jesus is doing here. They know the promises of the Messiah who's coming. Like, for example, in Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 5, which says this, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. God is speaking here, talking about who he is, what he has done in creation, and then he speaks directly, not to us, he speaks to the Messiah here. 
He says this, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a what? Light to the world. He says, I'm giving you to the people as a light for the nations. The Messiah to come will be the light of the world. And now Jesus is saying, I'm here. I am that light. And of course, John has already, John, our our author, has already associated Jesus with light from the very beginning of his book, right? He wrote in chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. In him was life. And the life was what? The light of men. And then he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus Christ is the light of life that dispels the darkness of death. He is our light and our salvation. And one day we know Jesus' light, his glory will be the light of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the light. There is no other. He is the light of the world. That's his claim. And from this claim, what is the right response? What should our response be to Jesus proclaiming to be the light of the world? What should be our response according to Jesus? He gives us actually real life application. I really appreciate this about Jesus here in John 8. He doesn't just give this like grandiose like claim and then leave us hanging in the air. Like what are we supposed to do with this? He tells us. Look at what he says to any one of us who will listen. He says this. I am the light of the world. And then he says... Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is the appropriate response to Jesus. This is the appropriate response to understanding that he is the light. That person who understands that Jesus is the light, what's the response? They will leave the darkness of this world. They will leave the ways of this world and they will walk in the light having the light of life. That's what Jesus says. And again, let's remember the context. Always go back to context. Let's recall the setting that we're in. By the way, I hope that you're seeing through John's gospel that context really, really matters. How impactful was last week? When we're talking about Jesus the rock, have you ever seen that before? Like I hadn't until I researched it. I'm like, oh my goodness. Context really matters. And it matters here as well. We are at the Feast of Tabernacles. The people are celebrating how God brought them out of darkness. How God brought them out of Egypt. How God brought them out of bondage. How God delivered them from their slavery. How God freed them and, and led them. Listen, all they needed to do, we know this. God made it simple for them. He says to the Israelites, all you need to do to be safe All you need to do to be secure, to be provided for, is follow the light. Follow the fire at night. Follow the cloud during the day. Follow the light, he says. Follow the Lord. And now, in that context, Jesus is saying, here is what you need to do. Knowing that I am the ultimate light, follow me. Listen, listen, we are, we, are, we are called here in this text to follow Jesus in the dark world that we find ourselves in. That's the assumption Jesus makes here. Our world is in darkness. And the reason that Jesus had to come is because our world was in darkness or is in darkness. It's the reason that we, we, we needed the light because the world is in darkness And there are so many expressions of darkness in our world, aren't there? So many expressions of this. The world is filled with lies, filled with hate, with division, with corruption, things like injustice, right? The the world that we live in is both morally and spiritually dark. You see, sin, sin has brought us into this place. It, It wasn't meant to be this way, but it is now because of the consequences of our sin. Darkness and death now dwell among us. A curse is upon us. 
And of course, on one level, it is true that we do live in a beautiful world. We know this. We see glimmers of beauty and hope all around us. But simultaneously, we must not forget that we live in a broken world as well. And because of that, this is key now, it's not only true that we live in a dark world, it's also true, we know from the scriptures, that all of us are actually in darkness ourselves. That we are lost. That we are blind. We are in, dark, in the dark. Unless, now Jesus says, unless we are following the light. Unless we are following Jesus. You know, it's very interesting. I think a lot of you, you know that I studied apologetics, and, which is a defense of Christianity, and like sometimes a lot more like philosophical or moral arguments for why Jesus really is who he said he is. And, and so I've, I've listened to a lot of people who are skeptical of Christianity or, or, or read a lot of people who are, are skeptical of Christianity. I've talked to a lot of people at coffee shops who are critical of Christianity, and oftentimes I'll hear them say something like this, I can't believe in Jesus because faith is such a leap in the dark. Say it like that. It, it's so hard for me to follow Jesus because, ah, this whole faith thing, it's like a leap in the dark. And you read this passage, passages like this, and you just want to say, actually, it's not. It's actually a leap out of darkness into the light. Faith is a leap out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Trusting in Jesus is what it means to come into the light. It's what it means to come out of darkness. That's why the Apostle Peter says that God has, again, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So hear me now. The right response here is to follow Jesus in this dark world. In the midst of the dark world that we live in, we follow him. But beyond that, there's more to this following. It gets more descriptive. We see here that beyond that, we are to follow Jesus overtly. I believe that's pretty clear in the text. We're to follow him, in other words, we're to follow him openly. See, to have the light of life means that our faith will be visible. Again, that we will be overt in our faith, not covert in our faith. I'll make that more simple. It means that our faith will not be hidden. Overt in the open, covert, covered, hidden. Our faith should not be hidden. I know some of you here, some of us, have kids here. Some of you have kids that are more overt. And some of you have kids that are more covert. Your overt kids tell you everything, right? They have a guilty conscience about them. They can never hold anything in or keep anything from you. Like even like a birthday secret or something. They just tell you everything, right? And then others of us have those covert kids. Right? You never know what they're doing, and maybe you don't want to know. <laughs> okay? Right? Maybe some of us were those kind of kids as well. I was a hybrid, I think. <laughs> but listen, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our faith, we are meant to be, actually more than that, we are called to be overt. We are called to be open. We are called to be visible. Like the Apostle Peter, for example. He's a good example of overt faith, overt following. He was open. He was honest, sometimes too honest. But you always knew what Peter was thinking. But then there was Judas. He represents the other side of this. There was Judas, who was following Jesus, but he was covert in his following. Behind the scenes... We know that Judas was doing things underground, hidden. He was stealing. He was lying. He was plotting the death of Jesus in the dark. See, if we want to walk with Jesus, it should be an open faith. It should be a clear faith. It should be a visible faith because that's what it looks like to walk in the light. Now, of course, we do need to be wise in doing this. We have to be discerning. We still need to know when to say things and who to say things to. 
But our lives, as followers of Jesus, who are walking in the light, are always meant to be on display. Our character should be visible to the world. It's why Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let them see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Point being, let your light shine, is what Matthew writes there. Let your light shine amongst men. It also means that we, we should be living a selfless life. It means that we are generous, we're forgiving, we're patient, we're kind. Paul says in Philippians 2 that one of the ways that we let our light shine, listen, one of the ways that we can let our light shine in Philippians 2 is by doing what? Not complaining. You want to be set apart in this world? You want to look different? Paul says there, don't murmur. Stop complaining like the rest of the world does. Or Ephesians 5 says, be a person that is filled with thanksgiving. That's the way to let your light shine. It's one of the ways to know, to test, am I walking in the light? Ask yourself, am I a thankful person? When's the last time that you've just thanked God? Maybe it's a sign if you're walking in the light or not. You're thankful. And let me be clear about this as well, that Jesus is not looking for perfect people. Okay, We know this. He's not looking for perfect people, but, but he is looking for honest people. He's looking for people who are willing to bring our darkness to him. Who are willing to confess our sin before him. Who are willing to to come with him, to come before him in need. Believing that he can deal with our struggles and pain. That he can and will forgive. That he can and will set you free. That he can and is willing to bring you out of darkness into the light. And the last thing I'll say about this, this following him, is that we know that we're called to follow Jesus, to follow this light together in community. We're not meant to follow him in the light alone. We have to know this, that the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ is actually a community of light. We are a community of light. And therefore, as a church, What we are to do is to spur one another on to walk in light, to encourage one another to to fight our sin, and beyond that, to help each other, encourage one another to share with others the light that we have. Jesus is the light of the world, and we are his people, and the call for us is to shine. So we've considered his claim We've looked at Jesus' desired response to his claim. And then we see the Pharisees begin to debate with Jesus. And it's sort of interesting what John does here in the the writing. If, if, If Jesus represents the light here, then the Pharisees represent the darkness. We see the contrast. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Therefore, your testimony is not true. We've heard the Pharisees say something uh, like this before, actually, in John chapter 5. They're almost saying verbatim, the exact same thing again. See, in Jewish law, we know that you needed two witnesses to give testimony to who you are and what you've done. Okay, That's required in Jewish law. Two witnesses. And here, Jesus is alone saying, this is who I am. So they're like, no, 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 right? Can't do that. And so understand what's happening. Instead of actually listening and wrestling with what Jesus said, they jump to, we caught you. (laughs) You're bearing witness about yourself, and you can't do that. That's what they're doing. And by the way, this is what unbelief looks like, just in general. It's a failure to really engage, a failure to really think, a failure to truly consider. The Messiah is right in front of them, but they won't even take the time to listen to him. So Jesus responds, 
And it's interesting here that he actually makes the decision to drop the whole light of the world talk, the whole light of the world message, and he goes along with them for just a second. He doesn't always do that, but he takes the time to do that here. Verse 14, Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. So Jesus, in other words, um, I, I wrestled with how to explain this really deeply, and I came down with a sentence. Jesus puts them in their place. <laughs> it's essentially what he does here. He, he says, I don't have to, what he's saying is, I don't have to play by your rules. I'm actually able to tell you who I am because I'm not like you. I'm not just another rabbi. I'm not just another Jewish person. In fact, I'm not even from here, he says. See, I'm the unique son of God. He goes on, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Then he says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, one, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So notice what he's doing here. He's playing by the rules, but then he's going, kind of trumping the rules. He's attacking their judgment here first. He's like, listen, you guys don't have the ability to rightly assess the situation, including assessing me. And beyond that, we have different standards when it even comes to assessing people or judging people. He says, you look at outward appearances, but I don't do that. That's what he's saying when he says, I don't judge people. The Lord Jesus Christ does judge, but he doesn't judge the outward, he judges the inward. He judges the heart. The Pharisees weren't doing that. They looked at him and said, you cannot be the Messiah. Like, look at you. Look at where your parents are from. You're from Galilee. You can't be who you say you are. And he says, no, no, no. <laughs> You're looking at the outward. I, I'm looking at the inward. Let me tell you who I am. See how he does that. It's beautiful. And then he actually says here, not only is my judgment true, and not only could I just say who I am by myself, because I have the authority to do that, he says, just so you know, even when I do judge, even when I do tell you who I am, I don't do it alone. Actually, I do play by your rules. I've done exactly what you require. It's me, number one, it's God the Father, number two, and that's all I need. That's the two, me, the Father, period. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually keeps going after them. And he actually gets to the root of their problem. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? <laughs> and Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus says, you lack <laughs> real discernment because you do not know the father. Understand, understand the impact of what Jesus is actually doing here to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. These are the religious elite. He says, you do not know the source of true spirituality. To those, listen, to those who actually, they teach about God. They teach, these are the teachers, the professors in the synagogues. Jesus says to them, you don't know God. Now, there's a lot I could say here, but I'll just leave it at this. You know, religion can be a really dangerous thing. People have done all sorts of evil in the name of religion. Right? That's why we're not trying to convert people to religion here. Right? We're, we're, we're trying to help people follow Jesus. And there is a radical difference, a radical difference, right? We don't need more Pharisees in the world. We need more genuine followers of Christ in our world, right? Religion doesn't bring people to the light. It only brings people further into the dark, actually, right? There's only one light, and that's Jesus. Religion doesn't do us any good. 
Well, the last part of this dialogue that I, I want to address before I get into some closing thoughts is what Jesus says starting in verse 21. Because here, he actually talks to them about the consequences of their unbelief. Or if you don't receive what I'm saying, there are consequences. There's the claim, the proper response, and now look here with me, the consequence of not following the light. This is verse 20, verse 19. So he said to them again, sorry, verse 21, my apologies. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. Listen now, this is big. And then he says, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So there's the consequence. You die in your sin. And then we see the Pharisees still can't grasp where Jesus is going, this place that they can't go. So the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? That's, what, that's where they've gone to. Is this man going to commit suicide? That's what they're saying. Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. So Jesus, once again, is drawing a line in the sand before them that day, that evening. Between himself and these guys, he's saying, I've told you and I'm telling you again, I am not like you. I don't judge people like you. And you don't have my perspective. That's what he's saying now. You have an earthly way of thinking, an earthly way of going about your life. My thinking, though, is from above. He's saying, my perspective is out of this world. And then he reiterates his point from verse 21. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, and he says it again, third time, you will die in your sins. Now, I can't overemphasize how important this statement is. John wants us to know this. That's why he says it three times. It's that important. Without Jesus, this is what we're told. From Jesus directly, his words, without Jesus, here's the truth, you will die in your sins. It's too important for us not to break down what he's saying there. Number one, Jesus says, and this is important for us to know, that we will die. We will die. You and I are going to die. It doesn't matter how much kale you eat. Right? You can eat all the quinoa you want. Purified water, probiotics. We will die. So how do you view death? The Apostle Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior who will transform our, look at what he says, lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Did you hear that? We got to know this. I think especially in our society here in Korea, we got to know this. There is only one, only one description of your body. Only one category for your body in the New Testament. They are lowly. It doesn't matter how good you think you look. It's lowly. It is fading away. Listen, we know this. People don't want to die. Of course not. I don't want to die. <laughs> of course not. That's why billions of dollars are spent on figuring out how to live longer. And sure, maybe if things progress, and they have, by the way, we take care of ourselves well, right? We might gain a few more years, maybe even a decade. Not a bad thing, by the way. Not saying that. Don't hear me wrong. But the reality still remains. I will die. The only question that does remain is, how will I die? And the Bible is clear on this. There are only two answers on how a person will die. Listen now. You can die as an unforgiven sinner 
or, or you can die as a forgiven sinner who knows and loves Jesus. Without Jesus, you die in your sins. And why do you and I have the opportunity to die as forgiven sinners? How can we even, how can we even receive that glorious benefit, that glorious truth, the benefit of not actually tasting true death, spiritual death? How do we escape that reality? Well, we can receive that benefit, clearly we're going to see, because of the cross. We, we don't have to die in our sin anymore because Jesus actually absorbed our darkness. He absorbed the judgment that we deserve. He experienced the wrath of God on the cross so that we no longer have to. Listen, today, all who are in him are safe. All who are in the light are safe. So Jesus is saying, come to me, follow me, trust in me, and I'll have you. I'll keep you. I'll rescue you. Listen, we're told now, the people want to know that day. They said to them, who are you? Who are you? Jesus said to them, can feel his, his pain actually here. Not frustration, I don't think. Not even anger. His, his heart is broken. Jesus said to them, who am I? Just what I've been telling you from the very beginning. Jesus has been telling his own people, the people that he came to die for, the people that he came to rescue, the Jews, again and again and again, I am from the Father. I'm here as your Messiah to save you, but you will not listen to me. You will not hear me. In fact, he tells them what they're going to do to him in verse 28. He says, you want to know who I am? You have the audacity to ask me that question? He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In other words, Jesus says to them, you're asking me who I am? Let me tell you, when you kill me, when you, when you hang me on the cross and I die, then you'll know who I am. Then you'll know where I've come from and that everything that I've told you while I've been with you is true. You will know that I'm the Savior. I'm going to show you. You'll know I'm the King. You'll know I'm the Messiah. Then you'll know I'm the light of the world. Listen, that day, that day, take yourself back there. That day, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, during this incredible festival of lights, the brilliance of it, when God's people were celebrating and remembering God's leading, his providing, his saving, Jesus looks at the crowd and says, I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will never walk in darkness again. It's a profound moment. Jesus says, I am the true pillar of light by day. And by night. And I'm here not to just lead you around the wilderness. I'm here now to lead you to the kingdom. I'm here to lead you to everlasting light. I'm here to lead you to me. And this Jesus, this Jesus, this light, it's not merely a light to look at. It's not, it's not like going up to the northern lights, right? It's not, I'm, I'm going to travel and I'm just going to admire this light. No, no, no. It's a light to follow. Jesus said, if any man, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He said to his disciples, right from the beginning, follow me. He said to the crowd here that day, follow me. And he's saying now to you and to me, follow me, follow me, follow me, and I'll take you into the promised land. Follow me, and you'll find the purpose, 
the joy, the love, and the hope that you've been searching for your entire life. Follow me. And here's the encouragement today as we close. John chapter 8, verse 30 tells us something incredible happened that day. John 8, at that feast, it says this. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he was saying these things, many believed. After hearing these truths, for some who were there that day in the crowd, I'll say it this way, the lights turned on. And they believed. They listened to the truth about Jesus, and they believed. And that's my hope and my prayer for all of us listening to these words of Jesus today that we would believe, that we would believe in him. Because of the gospel, because of the cross, you do not have to die in your sins. You can trust Jesus, follow Jesus. You can come out of the darkness and into God's marvelous light today. You can be transformed, actually, into a son or a daughter of light, the scriptures say. And if you're here today, and you can truly say, I know it's a lot of us here, if you're here today and you can truly say, I'm walking in the light, here's my appeal to you. It's simple. Keep walking in the light. Live in the light. Proclaim the light. Because this dark world that we live in needs the light. The whole world needs the light of the world. And Jesus is the light who brings life. He illuminates our path. He provides eternal safety. He's the ultimate healer. He's the great bringer of joy. FBC family, Jesus is the light. And by his grace, may we be a gathering of light as well. Let's pray together. I'll ask the worship team to come. And